come today to the sixth chapter. We'll be reading about an episode in the life of the church in which deacons were needed in order for the church to advance. Dr. Luke, as we've said before, is carefully selecting representative uh, pictures, uh, scenes from the early days of the Christian church for our instruction, and also to demonstrate patterns that were to continue to mark the life of the church. We are a congregation who continues to benefit from the establishment of this office and the service that we enjoy from those men who fill it in our congregation so faithfully and so well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we once again recognize our need, our need in this case for your spirit to open the word of God to us, to open our hearts to receive it, and to learn its lessons well, and enjoy its blessings well. So Father, we pray that that will happen now, that your spirit will teach us marvelous things from your law. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It was at a critical juncture here in the advancement of the kingdom of God that this office of deacon was instituted. Not, of course, that this kind of ministry was unknown up to that point among the people of God. As with the other offices in church government, there were earlier counterparts already in the Old Testament. Just as ministers had always borne the responsibility of proclaiming the word of God and leading them in the worship of God, and elders carried the responsibility of ruling, so also there had been a position among the Levites that looked very much like the role filled by these newly ordained deacons in the church in Jerusalem. Only now the need was even more pressing for their service, so Luke takes the precious space in his account to highlight the appointment of seven godly men to this important office of deacon. It is in the tradition of these excellent servants that our own deacons stand to this very day. I say the need for their service was even more pressing at this time in Jerusalem because an important shift had taken place 
No longer was the civil government or were the civil government and the church government so closely related as they had been in the ancient epoch. You'll remember from your Bibles that the state had fulfilled many of the diaconal functions, including the collection of tithes, care for the poor, and so on. In fact, it was precisely their failure to do that faithfully, to care for the poor as they should have, that so often brought down God's anger on the people of old. But now those provisions were no longer available to the church, and new arrangements must be made to provide for the needs of the poor. Well, they were caring for the widows the best they could in those early days after Pentecost, but apparently the work was falling on some hard times. Complaints began to be heard among the Hellenistic group about their widows being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, just a brief word about this dispute. There were two kinds of Jews in the Christian church in those days. They were the Palestinian Jews who spoke Hebrew and in some cases, no doubt, prided themselves on their being pure Jews without foreign influence. Then there are those Jews who had been taken away from Jerusalem or had been away from Jerusalem in many cases for generations. They no longer even spoke Aramaic, but Greek. They were the Hellenists. Alas, as we know to our heart's ache. Still today, there are sometimes, even in the church, divisions between brothers and sisters in Christ simply because of their differences, whether in language or in culture or in skin color or nationality or social class. And sometimes that suspicion or that prejudice also comes part and parcel with real consequences in the church. In this case, it seemed to the Hellenists that their widows were being unfairly treated in the daily distribution of help. And indeed, perhaps they were. At any rate, the remedy was clear. Men needed to be set apart for this work. Men who were not already engaged in the ministry of the word and worship, nor uh, already rulers, elders in the church, but men nonetheless of godly character, who were recognized by God's people as being worthy of and called to this work of service. So, seven men are chosen. Now, just as a sidebar here, take note of of this little fact here, this little detail. All seven of these men's names are Greek names. What wisdom it was And what spirit that must have animated these Christians to be far more concerned to avoid any division than to protect any vested interest. The Aramaic-speaking Jews, it appears, gave the entire ministry to Greek speakers, Hellenists, a clear accommodation to the Hellenists who had felt neglected. Now, we could draw any number of lessons from this text and run with them this morning. We could consider how officers are to be selected by the church, by the will of the people, as is demonstrated here. Thomas Witherow, in his classic exposition on biblical church government, that every 
ordinand for the ministry, has to uh, be well familiar with, makes this his first principle in his, uh, in his work on church government, the principle of popular election, that the officers of the church are to be chosen by the people. The apostles, no doubt, could simply have appointed men of their own choosing, but instead they called on the body of believers to select from themselves these seven men. Or we could develop the qualifications for the office of deacon, some of them listed in the passage before us in verse 3. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Or we could consider at length the doctrine of ordination, of the setting apart of church officers by the laying on of hands, as we read in verse 6. We could even spend the time this morning responding to those who would open the office of deacon to women, as is becoming more and more popular in the church these days. But what I want to emphasize instead simply is this, the great importance of the office and the work of the deacon to the advancement of the kingdom of God. In two parts. First, consider the importance of the role of deacon with regard to the ministry of the word and worship. That was the crisis behind this crisis, you know. The first most obvious crisis was that there had been a dispute between these Christians about the distribution and the maintaining of a just level of care for all of the widows. But the crisis behind it was even deeper. It was a crisis, or at least a potential crisis, of worship and the Word. The ministers, apostles of that day, were apparently busy about this work of distribution themselves. They were handling the diaconal tasks and duties while trying also to give attention to prayer. Literally, uh, as Dr. Jones pointed out to us so helpfully at uh, Covenant Seminary, literally the prayer, meaning the worship service. So the worship and the word, obviously the preaching and proclaiming of the word and that particularly in the worship of God. These were and are the things that ought to occupy the attention of pastors in the church. Worship and the word. But the diaconal type of concerns also need to be addressed. The poor and the widows and the orphans, they're the church's concern too. That's why the work of deacon is so terribly important, by the way, in the life of of the church and in the advancement of God's kingdom. Deacons free up ministers of the church to do what ministers are supposed to do, to fix their attention on worship and the word. Otherwise, and far too easily, the pastors become distracted, their central duties being pushed off to the side, while day-to-day concerns about diaconal cases or other details consume their minds And their time. When that happens, it can only spell bad things for the church. We are terribly dependent 
upon our ministers to lead the congregation faithfully in the tasks that God has given to them. We cannot afford to have distracted shepherds in our pulpits. Not when we have Paul saying things to pastors like, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourselves and your hearers. No, we must not distract our ministers with things that are nevertheless of great importance to the church, caring for the needy both inside and outside the congregation. That's not good for our ministers, and it's certainly therefore not good for us when our ministers are distracted from their tasks of worship and the word. I will go on to add something of a personal testimony to this, an encouragement um, from the fact that in some ways Christ Presbyterian Church, this church, has followed in the very pattern of Acts 6. I can remember for the first several years of ministry here in Owensboro, running groceries to people who called the church for help, running to the gas station to fill tanks, People literally pulling me away from sermon and worship preparation with their needs, meeting with landlords, consulting with motel owners, all because we did not have active deacons. And I can remember meeting with people in our own congregation who were in need of diaconal help, real needs, real needs that had to be attended to, tasks to which God has called his church. But I, neither could I continue to do that work and be faithful to the tasks to which God has called me. It's my pleasure and my pride to tell you and remind you that the Lord has raised up deacons of excellence in this congregation who have since taken on those tasks so that your pastor is not nearly as distracted by those but here, and here's the point, can you see how terribly important it is that the deacons remove this real burden from the pastor and from the elders, too, whose work it is to rule in the life of the congregation? By taking this work on themselves, the deacons serve by extension to advance God's kingdom mightily, as we read in verse 7. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, precisely because the deacons, faithful to their tasks and trusted them, freed up the pastors due to the work of their office. But that's not all. And here's the second point. In their own right, Deacons advance the kingdom of God directly by their service and their ministry. As they serve the needy and care for them in Christ's name, and because they do so, because of their work, God's kingdom advances. As they, as it were, become the feet and hands of Christ reaching out to the needy with healing balm and with help in time of need. You see, the reason why the care for the widows was delegated to the deacons was not because that work was unimportant, but precisely because it is so important that it needs 
to be given to godly and holy and wise men who will make this their specialty in the church. In so doing, the diaconate actually fills out the ministry, which the scripture teaches us must consist not only of the word, but in deed and in mercy and in love. Through the years, history has witnessed just how directly the work of deacons bears on the kingdom. Consider what a threat a working and faithful diaconate really is and has been to those who hate God's kingdom. Did you know that during World War II, when the Netherlands were occupied by the Germans, the deacons of the Dutch Reformed Church busied themselves with the care of those who were persecuted. My Dutch instructor from college lived in a home as a little girl, one of those homes where the Jews were hidden away in the attic. The deacons supplied food and refuge in secret. So the Germans decreed, when they came to understand this, they decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated from the church. The Reformed Synod on July 17, 1941, resolved, quote, Whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on diaconia lays hands on worship. The Germans backed down. Seeing, see how a working diaconate, see how an active group of deacons threatens and takes the territory of the enemy. Satan loses ground every time faithful deacons fulfill the duties of their office. And Satan's lost ground, of course, is the kingdom's gain. That's how God's kingdom grows at the expense of Satan's by freeing people from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. That's what faithful deacons do. This was demonstrated wonderfully to me years ago in a church, one of the churches in which I served as an intern. Virtually every week I can remember people coming to church for help on Sundays, on Wednesday evenings. Literally thousands of dollars were paid out monthly to landlords and utility companies in that church. But listen to this letter that came to the church from Faribault, Minnesota, a small city south of Minneapolis. My name is Amy Harton, she wrote. I came to your church For financial assistance about four years ago, at the time I was a member of the Baha'i faith and had been sober for about nine months, I came to meet with the deacons and I made it quite clear that I had no intention or even interest in becoming a Christian. I thought that because of this they would surely turn me down and turn me away. But that is most certainly not what happened. 
They agreed to pay my rent in full. I was amazed and thought, surely this was the greatest gift from God. The Lord had worked through them and allowed me to stay in my house. However, four years later, I realized that that alone was not the greatest gift that I received that night. Before I left them, they gave me a Bible, a Bible that stayed on the shelf for three years. When I picked that book up after so long, I read what they had written in the cover and then started to read the rest. I have to tell you that from that moment I picked it up, after three years, my life began to change. I read my Bible daily. I want you to know that your generosity and love has guided me to a place in my life and a relationship with God that I could never have imagined. I have found a wonderful church here in Minnesota and have had the wonderful opportunity to help out in Sunday school and I will be baptized next Sunday. I was asked to share my story of conversion with the congregation a couple of weeks ago and I'm including that with this letter. I want to share it with you as your church has been so instrumental in this transformation. Again, I want to thank you for sharing God's grace with me. God bless you. Much love and gratitude, Amy. P.S. You might also be interested to know that I have now been sober just under five years. Now that letter is wonderful enough, but... As she said, she sent along as well the account of her coming to Christ, and she delivered it in her church, St. John's Lutheran. It fills out the details wonderfully, and I, I think it's a powerful demonstration of the work that's done every day by faithful deacons in Christian churches, so I'm going to read that too. She writes, I was raised in a very religious family, though it was not Christian. Now, when people ask me how I decided to be a Christian or what led me to this belief, I have a difficult time trying to explain it. There have been so many God moments along this journey. It's incredible, and those types of things are very difficult for me to explain. But I will try my best. About four years ago, I was going through a very difficult and low time in my life. During this time, I lost my job and, as a result, could not pay my rent. I called United Way, and they gave me many phone numbers of places to call. I called all but one, and none could help. At this point, I went to a relative to ask if I could stay with their family, and they turned me down. I had no other choice but to call this one last place. This place was a church. I called and made an appointment to meet with the deacons. I must tell you, I was terrified. I knew what they would say, and I knew they would not help, but I had no other option but to try. So I went. On the way there, I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would be there with me and hold my hand. I was terrified because my understanding of Christians was that they thought anyone who didn't believe in God the way they did was surely going to end up in hell. And why this church, why would this church want to help someone like that? They wouldn't. I wanted so bad for them just to love and not be judgmental. 
Well, I got there and sat in this room talking to these deacons. And sure enough, the Bible and Jesus came up. They asked what I believed, and I told them, and they quoted the Bible saying that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And of course, I got defensive. They told me they were not there to argue with me, but that this was their job, and they wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't tell me this, if they didn't try to give me this message. That calmed me down a great deal. Somehow I understood this, and I knew that God was sitting there right beside me, helping me through this meeting. So when we got done talking, and I was asked to leave so they could talk among themselves, at this church the deacons leave, and leave the person sitting in the room. Uh, but they, they, uh, <clears throat> I left the room and knew what they would say. They couldn't help me either. They wouldn't help either. I went back into the room where they were ready for me, and I still knew, and still I knew, but they floored me by saying that they had decided to pay my rent for me. I couldn't believe it. I had made it perfectly clear to them that I was in no way interested in converting to their belief, but they were willing to help. They were willing to help a non-Christian. I was literally stunned. As they were wrapping up, they gave me a Bible. I went home and put the Bible somewhere where it was not touched for some years. Over the next few years, especially this past year, I started questioning the faith I'd grown up in. During this time, I moved here to Minnesota and got very close to a Christian woman, actually a St. John's member, Patty Ostwald, whom I developed an incredible amount of respect for and most of all, trust in. I had finally found a person I could voice my fears and questions to, and so I did. This led me finally, after three years, to pick up that Bible that the church had given me. This is the Bible, and as I opened it, I saw that they had written in the cover, Amy, please read John chapter 3, page 921, and John 14, verse 6, page 936. Then keep going. May you know the joy of sin forgiven by the Lord Jesus. I tell you, I did just that. I read what they had suggested and continued to read. I couldn't put it down. It really seemed like the best book I'd ever read. I started listening to Christian radio and watching certain evangelical programs. Eventually, I was led to pastors Crippen and Johnson, who have given so freely of their time And they, in turn, led me to study Ruth, uh, not Ruth, study with Ruth, (laughs) study with Ruth Hansen, which is just incredible and has been so helpful in answering my questions. Today, even though it has taken four years, the love shown by those deacons of that church has led me to the belief that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for me, and not only for me, but for all of us. I'm truly forgiven and truly loved by God, and i got to say there was a time when I didn't know that. He has come into my heart. He has made me whole. He continues to speak to me through the Bible, other people, through St. John's and through the Spirit. All I have to do is listen. 
thanks. Peace be with you all. That, dear flock, is what happens when faithful deacons take with both hands the work that they are called to do and for which they're equipped by God. Just as it was in the day of, days of old, so it is today. The word of God continues to increase. The number of disciples multiplies. And many become obedient to the faith. Amen.